Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians again, Galatians, the fourth chapter. A few weeks ago, we were studying verses one to five of chapter four of Galatians. We're studying through the book of Galatians. And when we studied the first few verses of chapter four, we ended with this part of the text, a text that's often read and preached on at Christmas time. Verse 4, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And so we see here that we were helpless We were suffering under our bondage to sin. We were slaves to Satan. We found in ourselves no ability to please God. But those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ have been redeemed from under the law by our Heavenly Father who sent His Son for that purpose. And this means that we have received the adoption as sons. Imagine that. Ask yourself whether there's anyone else who has loved you to that degree. Now, it's been uh, no, it will be no surprise to you to know that, to find out or to hear me saying that this week, this text has taken on a new meaning for me because I now have a new adopted child in my home. And she doesn't want me to talk about her in front of everybody, but come here. All, All my children get this privilege, which is to have people talk about them. And this is our niece, and now our child, Sarah. And she has the same last name that I have, spelled just as weirdly. It's Sarah Bailey, and I want you all to welcome her. Right, you can be so. And so as I've been thinking through this text and thinking about what adoption means, it's taken on a new significance for me. Um... Think about adoption. Why do people get adopted into families? Well, generally they get adopted because a couple is not able to have children of their own. And having the natural desire that their love will be fruitful, that God places in our hearts, that fruitfulness expresses itself in a way that is different than the norm, and that is that they go out and find children who don't belong to them physically, have not come from their wombs, and yet they adopt these children into their homes. Now, if you were to take a child who uh, was defective, and the parents with great anticipation would be looking forward to adopting that child, and then the parents would find out that that child was defective in some way, uh, would the parents go ahead and adopt that child? Well, they might, they might not. It would depend if you asked David and Kim Johnson on whether or not the Chinese government would let them do it. David and Kim had something just like that happen to them. Um, Now, let's say that instead of this child being defective in some way physically, that this child was defective in some way spiritually. Let's say that this child, when you came into the orphanage, all filled up with warm, fuzzy feelings, sentiment, you know, ready to be a mom or a dad. Let's say you walked into the orphanage and this child spit in your face and slapped your wife across the cheek. Or better yet, let's say that this child took a knife and plunged it into your chest. 
Now, why would I use such a, such a weird illustration? Well, because what the Bible tells us is that it was while we were still sinners, and not just while we were still sinners, but it tells us while we were his enemies, God adopted us. So if you can picture a weird thing, namely a little child in an orphanage attacking the people who have come to adopt her or him, this only begins to give us a picture of how radical it is that the mighty God, who had us as his enemies, set his affection on us anyhow, and adopted us as his sons. In Romans 5, we read, while we were still helpless, now everybody in an orphanage is helpless, right? At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Well, we're not just moving there from weakness, we're moving now into evil. We are helpless, we are ungodly, and then it says, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. And this is the point I'm making about adoption, which is what happens when God puts faith in us. You know, you might adopt a good child, but who would adopt a child who was your enemies? And yet God, verse 8 of Romans 5, demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Now, it sounds complicated because it's Paul and it's Romans. But the thing I want you to get is the fact that God has set his affection on and adopted his sons, those of us who were lost in sin and who were his enemies. And that's just completely contrary to anything we would expect a human being to do. Now, you might think at this point, well... I'm not sure how far that parallel goes because, in point of fact, every human being, even when they're adopted, is really the enemy of the person adopting them. And and I would agree with you. I would say that uh, because of our sin, even the sweetest adoption that's ever happened, you know, the adoption of uh, Anne of Green Gables, uh, the minute they brought her into their home, they realized that she was a pretty gnarly little girl. She had a big mouth. She had no social graces to speak of, although there was a certain endearing quality to her. And if you think of Anne and how she grew and, and, and sort of, uh, they, they, ad- they adopted, they, they, they ended up getting a taste for her, right? Um, this is largely what happens in our homes. In fact, if you think accurately about your home and your relationship with your children, if you're a parent, or with your mother and dad, if you're a child, what you realize is that love covers a multitude of sins. And you realize as your children grow, and the older they get, the more you see their sins, you're aware of their sins. In fact, often you recognize their sins because they're your sins. All right? And yet the love grows and love covers a multitude of sins. And so I believe that when we look at the adoption of children in our homes, 
Or when we look at the birth of children in our homes and are raising them, I think every parent looks at these children and says, what I have told you, I say to my son Joseph, Joseph, I love you. Joseph, I know you're a wicked man. And I love you. And this is the nature of our relationship with our human fathers and mothers, and it's only a tiny picture of God. God sees our sin perfectly. There's absolutely no um, uh, pulling the wool over his eyes. There's no place you can go to escape his notice. There's nothing he doesn't see. There's not the deepest, slightest perverted motive of our heart that he's not able to pierce down into. And this God, seeing you just as you are, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he set his affection on you and he adopted you. And what this does is this lifts adoption in the human realm up into a beautiful, beautiful thing. Because we all know now, all of us, that with spiritual reality, it's not because we're natural children of God that we're in his family. It's because he set his affection on us. And the whole language that's used in Scripture is the language of adoption, okay? And so it makes adoption a beautiful thing. And it makes God much more glorious than we would ever think. Think. God Almighty, maker of the universe, has set his affection on scum and disgusting creatures who are his enemies. And he's adopted us. And, and, and we didn't have much choice about it. You want to say, oh no, but I chose God. Well, you didn't choose him, he chose you. That's what scripture says. And so you can't even hold on to that. Well, he saw I was going to make a decision for him. No, no. He set his affection on you. And you say, why? And I say, for the same reason parents set their affection on little children and adopt them. Just because. There's no good reason. Just because. And so then we come to, at the conclusion, when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. You know, I think of, uh, you know, my brother and his wife, Nathan and, and Sandy, going down to South America. And they go through all this rigmarole. And what they're doing is they're redeeming two little children who will come and become their children. God redeemed us, not with papers and certificates and money and lawyers and orphanage officials and, you know, passports and stuff like that. But he redeemed us with the blood of his precious son. And we became his sons. We were adopted. Now, we come to the verse that we're beginning to study this week, but won't conclude studying. And that is verse 6, where it builds on this, and it says, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We see here that we have been adopted by God and that being adopted, we now have another gift. Now, I want to say a number of negative things over the coming couple of weeks. 
because you do not understand the positive truths of Scripture until you understand the attacks upon those truths. It's as you understand your sin that the grace of God grows. It's as you understand the denial of Scripture in certain parts of our lives that you begin to understand the truth of Scripture. And the first thing I want to say clearly is, when we speak here of this gift that comes from God, we are not talking about the kind of gift that is consistently talked about on Trinity Broadcasting Network. Okay? I have a basic philosophical disagreement with my father-in-law, and the disagreement is this. He does not think we should speak ill of people who are doing the Lord's work. Now, actually, I agree with him, but where we differ is over who is doing the Lord's work. And I believe that Scripture is very clear in many, many places in saying no to ungodliness, and it begins within the house of God. That You don't begin to say no to things that are outside the house of God. You don't begin to condemn Walt Disney or, or, or Washington or Hustler Magazine or Larry Flint. You come in the house of God and you condemn those things that are done in the name of Jesus Christ. And so the gift that's being spoken of is not the gift that Trinity Broadcasting Network leads those who watch it to believe is their rightful gift from the Holy Spirit as a part of the adoption. If you just take the mass of Trinity Broadcasting Network and say, what gift does Trinity Broadcasting Network tell you you're going to get? What is it? Well, Trinity Broadcasting Network would start about speaking of the baptism of the Holy Spirit by which you speak in tongues. And so the first thing that you're given is a supernatural sign gift. All right? They would speak of the gift of the baptism of the Holy Spirit that is proven by speaking in tongues. Then they would speak of the gift of fabulous amounts of money. Money, 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 money. Okay? And that is the theme of Trinity Broadcasting Network. It is an endless theme. And you are led to believe that as you follow the speaker, you will have fabulous amounts of wealth. Now, you have to do a little bit to get the wealth. Namely, you know, sow some seeds. All right? And, of course, the seeds, are you giving them money? All right, but it is money. Then you will receive visions and dreams. Constantly they make reference to the visions and dreams that God has given them. And they're often very specific. You remember the vision and dream that Oral Roberts, some of you, was given, what, 30 years ago. The vision and dream he was given was that he would have, what, a prayer tower that was like, I don't know, does anybody remember that? Huh? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was, but that's another one. Yeah, yeah. God was going to kill him if he didn't get a million dollars by January 1st or something like that. That's another one I'd forgotten. Yeah. But then there was also some building that was like, does anybody remember that? How many? 90? Well, that's not... Well, anyhow. There were a lot of visions and dreams that Oral Roberts was given. And uh, 
if you listen to them, you know, God gave me a vision last. Okay, so we got money, money, money. We've got visions. We've got dreams. We've got speaking in tongues is the proof of baptism. And then, of course, the most popular thing of all, which is what? Well, maybe it competes with money, but it's the fact that the blind will see, that the deaf will hear, that the dumb will speak, that the shorter leg will be lengthened so it's equal with the longer leg, that the paralyzed will walk, that the dead will be raised. But that doesn't happen too often on Trinity Broadcasting. They just speak of it. All right? And this is the proofs that you're held out that legitimates their ministry. This is what shows you that they are truly speaking for God. Is all this supernatural thing. But what does the Bible say? The Bible does not say that that is the way that you know that you are a part of the kingdom of God. The Bible says, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And if you look at a parallel text in Romans 8, 15 and 16, you'll see, for you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out again, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we become the adopted sons of God and with our adoption we receive the promised gift of the Holy Spirit and He, the Holy Spirit, proceeding both from the Father and the Son, lives within us and marks us with a sign of sonship. And the sign of sonship is not that you are able to have fantastic visions and dreams, that you're able to make the lame walk, that you are able to speak in tongues. It is not that you have fabulous amounts of wealth. If anything, that should cause people to be suspicious about you. But rather it is that when... You cry out, Abba, Father, this is the Spirit of God testifying with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now, at this point, there are a number of ways that I could go in teaching you from God's Word. And I think I'm going to take a number of them. Because this is one of those verses where the attack upon it and the application of its truths to our lives is like explosive. And I want to begin by explaining what is going on here in the text. Now, let me read our text one more time. Verse 6. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Aramaic is the language that would have been used by Jesus and His disciples, and Abba, that word you see in your Bibles, is simply the Aramaic word Father transliterated into the Greek of the New Testament and therefore by the translators of our Bibles into English. In other words, if you have a foreign language, and when those who wrote the Bible in Greek 
clomped on to a word from that foreign language and didn't bother bringing it into Greek, but just simply left it in its former language, then the English translators are not going to take the liberty of changing it in English. They're going to say, well, in the inspired text, this word is brought in, transliterated, we'll leave it that way in English. And so what's going on here is that you have the common language of Jesus and his disciples, the word for father, Abba, clomped on to the common word in Greek, which was the language of the New Testament, which is pater. Okay? And so you have, if I were to take it back into both of the original languages, and I were to give you out loud what this sounds like in the original language of the Bible, all right? So say I'm not translating it into English at all. This is how it would sound. Abba, pater. All right? Now, if I were to decide that um, I wanted to worship God uh, using my own English language, and I were wanting to build onto the tradition, I could say this. I could say, Abba, pater, what? Now, at that point, we diverged based on our childhood. Um, I love being around the Henrys, which Mary Lee and I were able to be around them this last weekend, because I love hearing their children refer to them as papa, or to their father as papa. I've never heard any other family do that. Maybe that was your habit. In our home, it was daddy and dad. And you might have a different habit entirely. I don't know. But... Nevertheless, think about this now. You have Jesus and the disciples, Jews, who speak Aramaic. They say Abba. Then you have Greeks, and they say Pater. And then you have Tim, Bailey, who says Daddy. Okay? Abba, Pater, Daddy. Now, that's not what the text says. The text only says Abba, Father. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, anticipating, praying to his Father, anticipating the terrible suffering and torment that was coming in his betrayal, in his trial, in his crucifixion, death, and burial, we have this record of Jesus praying in Mark 14.36, saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And so these are the three places that these, this construction appears in the New Testament. When Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, in Romans 8, and then here again in Galatians 4. And it appears that this phrase has come to be a confession of faith of the early church. It seems that the first Christians made a habit of speaking to God in this way, combining the Aramaic and the Greek words for father. And this was significant since the book of Galatians is written to bring to a halt the oppressive claims of superiority of the Jewish Christians, the people we commonly refer to by shorthand as the Judaizers. Those Jews would most easily have said Abba, and the Greeks they were oppressing would most easily have said Pater. So when we read Abba Pater, we are reading both sides of the division in the Galatian church confessing their adoption and faith in each other's language. And this is what I mean when I say, if I were to walk into the Galatian church and say, well, but I'm English speaker, then it may well be that they, out of graciousness to me, at some point would have said, 
Abba, Pater, Father, or Daddy. Now, why is this significant? Well, one of the things that makes it significant is that we see in the use of language the unity of the body of Christ. Can't you just imagine being a Jew and saying, no, it's going to be Abba. And then you're Greek and you say, no, it's going to be Pater. And so what we need to realize is that even in the confession of faith, we see the beautiful gift of God making one the people of God, even through their language. So it's not just Jewish language, not just Greek language. So that the the Greek widows and the Hebrew widows in the book of Acts both receive an equal amount of the food that's gathered and distributed every day. Now, what am I doing talking about that? Well, it's another example of how you have to push together the Greeks and the Hebrews in the early church. You push them together by having them have fair amounts of food shared between them. You push them together by having them both say, we know that we are born again because our hearts cry out within us, Abba. But that's not what it says. Because our hearts cry out, Pater, but that's not what it says. Our hearts cry out, Abba, Father. Now, here's where we're headed. You'd have to be completely deaf, dumb, and blind today to not know that this verse is ground zero of about the most heinous uh, errors of, of Scripture that our culture sees. Because if you look at the verse, you'll see that it says sons, it says son, and it says Abba, and it says father. So in just a few words, we have four words that are sex marked in a male way. And this is heinous. David Carell, or David, not David Carell, but David Canfield sent me this article done by Richard Osling, who for years and maybe still is a religion editor of time. And he says, Should the Bible call God the Father or Lord? Should Jesus be termed the Son of God or Son of Man? Should masculine words such as King and Kingdom be allowed? Should Holy Writ have so many male pronouns? Not if militant feminists have their way, as they do in an awkward rewrite of the complete Bible issued in four volumes, the inclusive Hebrew Scriptures and the inclusive New Testament. These degendered Scriptures were produced for the liberal Roman Catholic priests for equality. The revisers say, quote, most Scriptures read in worship services are still grossly sexist, unquote. And, quote, the continued self-destructiveness of an all-male clergy only worsens matters, unquote. They start with the Lord's Prayer. Well, actually, make that the teacher's prayer. Since God can no longer be addressed as Father, and His kingdom... Well, no, make, make that God's kingdom, not His cannot come, we get, Abba, God in heaven, hallowed be your name, may your reign come. Abba is left in. Why is it left in? Well, because nobody has an offensive attitude or sees Abba as being offensive because they don't know what it means. But it's just Aramaic for Father. Well, they leave that in, but they don't leave Father in. So it's Abba, God. It could have been Abba, Father. It could have been... Godfather, it could have been God, God. And wouldn't that be best, really? You neuter both Abba and Father, and it's God, God, 
Or, as I was led to pray in thousands of times in the Presbyterian Church USA, where I used to serve, neuter it all and say, Creator, Redeemer, and Sustainer. Don't ever say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so, just endless prayers are led in the mainline denominations, Creator, Redeemer, and Sustainer. I go on, rain, the word rain, is awkward for oral readings because it hits the air like a prayer for rain, R-A-I-N. The translation invents kingdom minus G to replace the supposedly sexist kingdom. So it's kingdom because you don't want to refer to the male royalty. But family references are okay. But then kin are related. And so that could be offensive to those who have chosen to leave their lives alone. Well, I'm serious. There's absolutely no place to stop this. And he makes that point. He says, take Babylon. In Scripture, Babylon is called the mother of harlots. But this famous symbol of the evil Roman Empire in Revelation 17.5 is deemed quote, genderous, unquote, and full of, quote, misogyny. And that means uh, those who hate women. And the reason they give is because male prostitution is as old as female prostitution. And so instead of saying the mother of harlots for Babylon, they say source of all idolatry. So the mother of harlots becomes source of all idolatry. The revisers add words that are not in the Hebrew and Greek text, for instance, inserting women's names when genealogies name only men. On pronouns, the revisionists de-emphasize his or him in passages that describe Jesus Christ's earthly ministry and bar them all together following the resurrection. Because women, the inclusive Catholics, are worried about marginalized minority groups Gays and lesbians, they shun slave and change Jews to temple authorities. The poor become poorer people or people in need. The Bible uses partner in place of traditional marriage terminology to acknowledge and value non-traditional relationships. In the list of sinners in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, instead of the usual homosexuals, it restricts the denunciation to hustlers and pederasts. In 1 Timothy 1.10, criticism of sodomites is rewritten to target only, quote, men and women who traffic in human flesh. In the Old Testament, they speak of the creation, quote, not of Adam, but, quote, of an earth creature, unquote. Whatever this being was, it certainly couldn't be called a man, much less a particular fellow named Adam. Now, I read this. Because I know I'll get some laughs and chuckles, and I know you all feel superior to them. But over the coming week or two, I'm going to make the case that you, in fact, agree with them completely. Or you're in danger of it. And I want you to be aware that at the same time as this Bible was released, the evangelical publishing houses of Zondervan and the International Bible Society have released the TNIV, Today's New International Version. And the only difference between what they've done and what Zondervan has done is, is, is a very slight difference. Namely, Zondervan has decided not to do it with respect to God. But they do it 
with respect to people. They do the same thing about Jews that this Bible does. And I want you to realize that when the Bible says that you find the Holy Spirit in your heart crying out, Abba, Father, it's not just speaking of adoption and, and you sort of having a familial feeling and relationship to God. That these words mean something and that you cannot be a believer if you will not pray to God as Father. As a matter of fact, if you will not pray to God as Father, you are not a Christian. If that's not true, then it means absolutely nothing what it says in Romans and Galatians. It's not just talking about us having warm, gooey feelings towards God. It's saying that the Holy Spirit testifies that we are born again because we pray, we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, I realize this is a difficult thing for many of you. But I'll say to you what I have said to many of you in private, and that is the solution to a life of suffering under men is not to kill the fatherhood of God. And it is not to kill that fatherhood of God as it witnesses in our hearts to our family relationship to him. But it is to go back and to reclaim the perfect fatherhood of God and then to judge the fallen fatherhood of man by that standard of God's fatherhood. And until we are committed to doing that, we do not understand the Christian faith. And so this is an indication of what is to come in the weeks ahead. I, I, I pray that each of you will come to the text of Scripture believing not just that it contains truth, but that it is truth. That the words that the Holy Spirit uses in opening up spiritual truths to us are not words that are defective in carrying meaning, but that they are the perfect words chosen by the Holy Spirit. They're not accidental. They're not defective. Human language is defective, but when the Holy Spirit chooses it, it's perfect. And so this is where we'll be headed. Now, I want to encourage you this morning as we come to the Lord's Supper. Some of you are very timid and weak and fearful as you come to this table. And I want to point out to you something that we'll have occasion to return to again. But that is, if in your heart you do find yourself crying out, Abba, Father, this is an indication that this meal is for you. If you find in your heart this unnatural thing where, despite the suffering of your life, despite the failures of others, despite your timidity and fear, you find yourself loving his word, loving his words, loving him, crying out to him, Father. This, the Bible says, is an indication that you are an adopted son. And no matter how bondage to sin you are, no matter how fearful and timid, no matter how much unbelief you find in your heart. This is your, uh, your communion token. This is the thing that you give that allows you to come to this table. You say, I have heard the Spirit of God in my heart crying out, Abba, Father.
And so I encourage you to come to this table. If you guys could come, I'd, I'd be grateful, please. Thank you. Um, let me read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We have the words of institution there. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There are two categories of people who should not come to the table. One is those who refuse to worship God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who do not believe in the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. If you're not a believer and you reject God, then I exhort you to bow the knee to God and place your faith in Christ before you come to this table. This is a family meal. This is a time when there is a distinction made between the people of God and those who are not part of his family. Then there's another category, and that is those of you who may be living in conscious and willful rebellion against God in some major area of your life. Uh, It may be lust that you refuse to give up the idol. It may be uh, that you refuse to submit to the authorities of your church. They've placed you under discipline, and you will not repent. I don't know your hearts, but if you are living in defiance of God, even though he is your father, I encourage you to make it right with him before you come to this table. Now, there's one category of people who should be exhorted to come to this table, and that is those of you who are timid and fear that you couldn't be worthy of this meal because you are so aware of how far short you fall of the perfection of God. And I encourage you that as long as you live in this life, that is going to be your condition. And that's why you need Jesus Christ. And I exhort you, don't be timid in coming to this table. Be bold and trust that when Jesus commanded you to eat and to drink at this table, that he knew who you were, that he knows that you're an evil person, and that it is precisely you that he has adopted and that he commands to come. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Father God.